Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Uh, now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the United States' obsession with getting natural gas to Europe, Russia seceding from the petrodollar system, and our weekly update on the Russo-Ukrainian War. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. Uh, I apologize if you hear other voices in the background. My family's downstairs, so they're chatting up a storm, and I'll be joining them after the episode. So uh, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So Azerbaijan, their first president since gaining independence when the Soviet Union collapsed, their first president dies in Baku last week. Uh, Turkey has issued its requests for a ceasefire in Ukraine. They're, they're calling for a ceasefire. Turkey's been increasingly diplomatic in these past few weeks. We actually talked about it in, I believe, two episodes ago. Uh, the sudden rise in importance of Turkey. Uh, pretty shocking uh, rise. It was so sudden. But the geography just works in their favor. They're smack dab in the middle of everything. Uh, but far enough away not to get caught in the crossfire. So, definitely got to look out for Turkey. Uh, speaking of their Turkey's neighborhood, the Houthis down in Yemen have instituted a three-day truce with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and this came after bombing Saudi Arabia with ballistic missiles for multiple days. And if I'm not mistaken, today is the last day of the truce. It was announced unilaterally on Saturday, so I'm pretty sure. Uh, count If you count Saturday, then today is the last day of this truce, and they'll probably go back to bombing Arabia, which will convince the Arabians in a not-so-nice manner to continue their withdrawal from this conflict. Now, whether the Houthis forgive and forget is another matter, uh, especially once they're done fighting in Yemen. So, we'll have to see where this goes. I have a feeling there's going to be a very strong grudge uh, between the Houthis once they've finished their war in Yemen, and I am of the belief that they will win. Uh, more than any other state in the Middle East that Arabia's intervened in. Uh, we talk about Iraq, we talk about Syria, we, and then there's Yemen itself. I feel that Arabia has a better chance of smoothing over the, that friction with Syria and Iraq, and even Iran, than they do of smoothing things over with Yemen. Now, we'll just have to, really, we'll just have to wait and see. Because perhaps the Houthis pull a Taliban, and they go from being savage war fighters, hell-bent on taking their country back. Perhaps they go from that to being on a much, much more peaceful footing where now they advocate stability, like the Islamic Emirate currently does. 
not without its border skirmishes for Afghanistan. So I imagine there'll probably be some skirmishing between the Houthis and Arabia once the war is over. And yeah, th- th- that's the assuming the peaceful route and assuming the Houthis don't hold the grudge that I'm feeling that they might held uh, a bigger grudge than anyone else. But things for the future to look out for. Uh, up north from this region in Lebanon, Lebanon has continued their talks with the IMF. And they're doing this for financial aid to try to smooth over the fiscal crisis that they're in, which is better described as a depression that they're in. And we talked about this uh, months back, doing episodes on the influence battle that broke out briefly over who was going to have more influence in Lebanon. Iran took the cake, uh, primarily through their oil. They sent a convoy through Iraq and Syria to get to Lebanon. They sent tankers through the Suez Canal that sailed around to get to Lebanon. So through oil, Iran managed to beat out France and even Turkey for position here. Uh, There was another player, though. There's another player, but I'm forgetting them. But the main contestants for the influence battle in Lebanon at that point in time was France, who was offering an economic recovery plan, and Iran, who was offering cheaper energy to help people who had suddenly found themselves with reduced or no incomes get by. And from what we can tell, based on what happened, the Iranian effort had a much stronger impact on the ground. Much, much stronger. But not obviously not enough to pull Lebanon out of its depression. But Lebanon's perhaps gone from being a friend to an ally based off that move. But Lebanon is now asking the IMF for money. And we'll see if they can get it. Speaking of the IMF, they, they claim that the... I was almost about to say the United States. They claim that the Ukrainian economy has shrunk by two-thirds since the Russian invasion began. That is massive, especially considering that the Russians have only taken about one-third of Ukraine's territory. But most, I suppose, that taking a whole bunch of the Black Sea coastline, is, I guess that accounts for a much larger percentage of their GDP than it would appear just looking at a map so i guess that's I, i'm assuming that that's what's happened here you know, i'm guessing that the east or at the very least the south of ukraine was more economically productive than the rest of ukraine if the relatively small gains when you look at the size of ukraine itself russia hasn't taken too much there's still plenty of Ukraine left to go. So for their economy to be down two-thirds, it's pretty wild. But I guess economics isn't necessarily a one-to-one ratio. But interesting thing to think about, assuming that these figures are correct. And I guess only time will tell. You know, once the fog of war clears and we can start getting much more accurate pictures, uh, we'll have to cut through historical narratives while we do that. Because everyone's going to want to write the war and rewrite the war to fit 
the way that they view it. I can already see that coming. It's already happening now, for a matter of fact. Just look at the news. But, uh, well, it'll be interesting to see the numbers that come out of this once the war is over. But it looks like the war is going to take a bit longer. Because the Russians uh, haven't moved much from their current positions. They haven't even encircled Kiev. So it looks like the Russians are settling in for a longer war. Uh, so there's speculation about a war of attrition uh, and an economic war of attrition. But I'll sort of talk about those a little bit later. But uh, that's what we're dealing with in Ukraine. Uh, j just a little bit of what we're dealing with in Ukraine. I'll, again, I'll get to the update in a little bit. Uh, the United Kingdom, speaking of the conflict, the United Kingdom has moved four fighter jets. These are Eurofighter Typhoons that they've moved into Romania, close to the Ukrainian border. Now, they, they're not going to send them into Ukraine, although there's a whole lot of talk about a no-fly zone, uh, mainly coming out of the United States, uh, NATO, and the United Kingdom. And I mean NATO, the institution, not NATO as sort of a collective cry for these sort of things. But you have talk about a, instituting a no-fly zone or a limited no-fly zone or whatever that's supposed to mean. But um, that would mean shooting down Russian jets, which would mean war with Russia. So what we really have is talk about open-ended war with Russia um, by countries who are not in the war yet, and truth be told, shouldn't be in the war because Ukraine's not their ally. But that gets lost in the fog. And lost in the propaganda, too. Uh, the EU and the US have begun negotiating a data transfer deal, which is going to make it easier for businesses to transfer data uh, between each other, data on their customers. Uh, great, great. It's so nice that Facebook, uh, Meta, uh, it's so nice that Meta is going to have an easier time selling my soul to foreign agencies. Glorious. Very, very glorious. <laughs> Maybe it's not as sinister as I make it out to be, but that's how I feel. Uh, oh, well. Oh, well, oh, well, oh, well. India and China... <laughs> Continue their discussions to settle border disputes. They met. Wang Yi went to India last week. Um, and they talked for a, a bit. Uh, they talked for a couple hours. Mainly having these sorts of discussions. And a number of other things. Obviously they talked about Ukraine. And. Interestingly enough. India and China are backing Russia on this one. There's been attempts made by people to get India off the fence, which really means to get India on their side, but India's with Russia on this one, and you're not going to be able to move. There was an interview where there was this um, American professor who was on a show uh, in this Indian news agency, and there was a number of people, panelists that were there, and the Indian news guy, he cuts off the professor and basically just tells him about America. It tells America about itself and 
because the professor was going on about our values and having to stand up for them and the Indian guy I'm sorry for keep on calling him the Indian guy but I don't know his name he's the news anchor for that show he brought up the US invasions in Libya Iraq Afghanistan and Syria and even Yemen and many of the terrible things that have happened as a result of these wars and really just called out the hypocrisy of the people talking about rights and values and defending freedoms when we don't do that ourselves like and this is in my view always been the achilles heel of many of the interventionists uh, arguments and their points that they make it's how can you advocate this this we're going to bring peace love and democracy to the world we're going to bring stability to the world when we are the ones who in recent history and talking the last 20 or 30 years we have been the ones most guilty of destabilizing regions how are you ever going to sell that to someone who knows our our record you can't and it's always going to be there it's always going to be the chink in the armor it's always going to be the splinter in your toe it's not going to go away until we stop doing them but they don't want to leave and so we're stuck Ugh. but uh so that was an interesting story that came out of this uh, in india in particular where they're siding with china on this one although that doesn't mean that they've made an alliance with China, as the Maldives have shown. Because the previous president of the Maldives, the Maldives, I should say, there we go. The previous president of Maldives, who was jailed for corruption, has come back into the political arena, this time running on an anti-India platform. And he claims he wants to reduce Indian influence in the country. Naturally. This has stoked fears in India about the Maldives flipping to Chinese influence instead. So that influence battle that I pictured was going to be the broader Indo-Chinese Cold War fought primarily in Southeast Asia. We're always starting to see it expand because the Maldives are sort of to the straight south of India, south west just a little bit it's kind of like right off the the southern tip of india there to the southwest of that so very close to india very sensitive for india and they have a candidate for presidency now who's anti-indian uh so that influence battle between the two giants of east asia is expanding so even though India and China may stand in solidarity with Russia, and even though they may be trying to work out their border dispute, which I feel is going to take a bit more than talking, because they've been beating each other up with fists and clubs with nails in them. It's going to take more than talk to settle that. And the more you have little proxy influence battles like these in the Maldives 
the more you're going to have relations between India and China be hampered. And such talks like this to genuinely trying to settle disagreements between the two are going to be uh, sabotaged by other geopolitical tensions between the two countries. So, the two giants of Asia are already butting heads more, even as they stand together. The Indo-Chinese Cold War fought primarily in Indochina, the region between the region east of India and south of China. The Cold War is already on, and I, I guess it's more of a, a, a great game type thing rather than a Cold War, but I'm going to call it a Cold War because it's it is more recent and easier for people to understand than the great game was. That was between Britain and Russia in the 1800s. But uh, very interesting. More developments in this. It's been pretty quiet for a while, but it's back. And as India grows stronger, as they're really starting to catch their stride now, it seems, especially in their diplomacy, as India starts to rise and become a true competitor to China, at least regionally. Because all India has to do is be a regional power to do that. We're going to see them butt heads more. And that's going to produce some very interesting results and very interesting sort of means by which they conflict against each other. I feel they're going to avoid military conflicts and instead opt for the influence battle. And those influence battles are going to be very interesting to watch. That's uh, India. And last but not least... The WTO, the World Trade Organization, has denied entry to Belarus, and then they joined the Belt and Road. Uh, okay, so that second part, let's say the story did not say that, the part about Belarus joining the Belt and Road, but I'm pretty sure that's the uh, path that would s- the country's going to go down. Pretty sure that's the path that's going to go down. But, uh, yeah, that is the rapid-fire news, and we'll get into the meat in just a minute. Alright, time to get into the meat. And we're going to mix things up this time because we're going to start the episode, or we're going to start this segment of the episode, with the update to the Russo-Ukrainian War. So let's get into it. Uh, it's actually pretty small because, again, the front lines haven't moved. Uh, the siege of Mariupol, Chernihiv, and Nizhyn continue. Kiev is still at the gates of destruction. Uh, the Russian forces are still right outside and even occupying some of the suburbs of Kiev. And uh, the front line is basically the same as it was last week. Now, I anticipated that there would be more movement this week because this was the same situation uh, that we talked about last week. Because as of now, the front hasn't really changed over the past two weeks instead of one. I anticipated that there was going to be more movement as the Russians regrouped. But it seems like the Russians have regrouped and chosen to stay put. And they've even now issued statements about uh, moving on to another phase. Uh, in a public announcement, Colonel General Colonel General Sergei Rutskoy, a deputy chief of the Russian general staff, he stated that the first stage of the operation 
has been completed. Now, remember, the Russians refer to this as a military operation, not an invasion, so that's what he means. The first stage of the operation is complete. And he states that that stage was the liberation of the Donbass, and this is according to him. So, given what we can see on the map, or at least the map I'm looking at, I'm watching a channel called Volgada Mapping, that's where I sort of get my updates on the war map when I do my episode. So, based on his maps that I've seen, yes, the Donbass has been completely taken back, except for like a small sliver of land that technically is still Donetsk, but the Donbass is in Russian hands right now, and so is almost all of the Ukrainian south coast, the Black Sea coast. So, yes, if if he's honest, if, if we are to believe that this was actually the first phase, and this is the agenda of the first phase, the liberation of Donbass, and the Donbass has indeed been liberated. Now, we can't necessarily confirm that, because we weren't, you know, in the meeting when the wars, before the war began. We can't necessarily confirm that, yes, this is phase one, and then phase two is going to be this, 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 and this, and then phase three is going to be this. We can't really confirm that, so we really just have to take him at his word, you know. Um, but, hey, it's, the, it's all we got. So, first phase complete. Liberation of Donbass, according to him. And the front line now stalemates. And I'm hearing that there's lots of casualties, mainly from the Ukrainian side, um, particularly in the Donbass region. And we, we've seen some numbers in the upper thousands and when you sort of see what the battlefields look like after the fighting it's kind of easy to believe those numbers that they're throwing out there now the US NATO and the EU will say the casualties on the Ukrainian side are low and the Russian side are high but the Ukrainians their military is the one saying that casualty figures are kind of high so I guess we have to choose who we believe, and uh, I guess on this one I'm with the I'm on the Ukrainian side when it comes to how many they've lost. Because again, uh, I'm fully honest. I'm biased towards Russia on this one. Look, I'm biased towards Russia. I'm just gonna be honest. I believe that the Russians are gonna win. I believe the Russian military is more potent than the Ukrainian military. So, when I hear stories that the Russians have lost large amounts of troops, and the Ukrainians have lost few, I'm skeptical of those. Now, the reverse, I'm not so skeptical. But that's my bias. So, take even what I say with a grain of salt. But, um, frontline stalemates, I don't imagine there'll be too much entrenching as that hasn't really worked for the Ukrainians in the Donbass. Instead, the Ukrainians are hiding military assets in civilian buildings, like malls and schools and uh, high-rises. So, I imagine that this is going to incur more and more strikes by the Russian military on these sorts of targets, which will then be used against Russia in the PR campaign. 
uh, how could you bomb a school full of children? It's similar tactic to what um, the Palestinians, not the Palestinians, the, the Hamas and Hezbollah do in Lebanon, in Palestine, where they hide their military equipment in residential districts so that when the Israelis inevitably bomb them, oh no, you've hit an apartment building. You monster. It's very dirty and endangers the lives of the people you're supposed to be protecting, but is great for slandering the name of your opponent. So I guess the trade-off there. Don't know if the trade-off is necessarily going to be worth it for the Ukrainians because they still haven't gotten any real aid. Like, I mean, they've gotten some volunteers. They've gotten some volunteers primarily from uh, um, the United States, the UK. You've had volunteers from primarily those regions. Um, I know there's more from other countries as well, but these are sort of the, the big two that I know of that I can sort of confirm. And that in, uh, that in and of itself led to a very interesting story where you had a, a Reddit, a subreddit, which is um, sort of a, for those who don't know, Reddit is a social media uh, website where you have subreddits, which to compare to YouTube would be like a YouTube channel, but a subreddit is more like a, a, a chat room, if I'm describing it right, a chat room where People can post things specific to the subreddit. So if a subreddit is a specific subject, you post things specific to that subject, and people congregate around that. And so in one of the subreddits, the subject of it was Volunteers for Ukraine. That was the name of the subreddit. And it has a couple tens of thousands of people in it. And so what this subreddit is, is... Goodness... It's self-explanatory. People were volunteering to fight for Ukraine. But, but, remember, they upload things about the subject matter of the subreddit. You had Reddit volunteers in the Volunteers for Ukraine subreddit who actually went over to Ukraine and have joined the Ukrainian military. They have on at least three occasions compromised the locations of the barracks they were at via the pictures that they uploaded to Reddit. The pictures taken of themselves and of the of the equipment that they're being given, of certain rooms that they're being spoken to in, and maybe their accommodations. And what has happened is that in doing this, they have enabled the Russian military to find them courtesy of these pictures. The, the Russian military was able to use the context clues from these pictures and from these selfies to geolocate where they were at and bombed the barracks, resulting in hundreds of deaths. There was even another story of people who went to Ukraine. Uh, again, these are Western volunteers to Ukraine who compromised the positions of their troops that they were with with their phone signals because the Russians could track it 
and based off these people, because some of them were live streaming this, all right, some of them were live streaming this, the Russians were able to track where they were based on the footage in the stream and then bombed whatever troop or battalion they were with. And it's, it's resulted in hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers dying uh, alongside probably hundreds of volunteers dying too. Compromised. Just straight compromised. And you have... It, I don't even know what to say. It's just... <laughs> I... I don't think this is what Zelensky thought he was going to get when he asked for foreign volunteers. I'll, I'll just say that much. I, mean, I could make a joke about how he asked for volunteers, expected the foreign legion, and got the special forces... I could make that joke, and I guess I have, but I'm not going to. Wink, wink, wink. Um, but that's, it's wild. That is absolutely wild. I, I'm without words, but, um, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm going to move on, because I don't know what to say about that. It's just so bizarre to me to even read about this. And think that, yes, this is a war. Yes, this is... This is a thing that has happened in this war where you... Uh, I... Oh my goodness. Just... Wow. I mean, I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of the Ukrainian military or the military high command. Where you get the volunteers you ask for. By the thousands, even. But they're complete and total inexperience of anything military related compromises your troops and gets hundreds of them slaughtered as if you weren't in my view being beaten badly enough but let's say the ukrainians are winning you're losing hundreds of the soldiers that have helped you win the war even if we go with the media assumption the the narrative that is being spun in the mainstream media here in the United States that Ukraine is winning Russia's bogged down even if we go with that narrative your, your volunteers that you're getting are getting the troops that are winning you the war killed because of their incompetence there was a story of a guy who left his wife and kids without telling them to go volunteer in Ukraine and he got there, decided it wasn't for him, tried to leave, and then found out the Ukrainians weren't going to let him leave. And there's a number of videos coming out now from people who've regretted their decision and are warning people to stay away. Now, people who are pro-Ukraine are dismissing this as Russian propaganda. And others are saying, well, you should have thought about this before you went in. I am just flabbergasted. By this whole situation, I uh, again I am without words that this is something happening in a war. Like I honestly do not ex. I don't know what people expected when they volunteered to go fight a war. They just what did they think they were gonna? Ugh, I can't even speak. I'm so. Did they think they were going to go over there, fire like two rounds, and then walk away? 
that I don't, that's not how that works. That's not how that works. I mean, Ukrainian men aren't even allowed to leave the country. Uh, they, they're being conscripted at the border when they're trying to leave with their families. And then put into uniform and thrown on the front lines. And these volunteers, who probably, to be fair, haven't been told that by the same media institutions that convinced them that Ukraine was winning and was on the good side, they volunteer. And now they're, they want to leave and they're being treated to the same, the same routine. Some of them are being let out because the Ukrainians are increasingly seeing the volunteers as a liability rather than an asset. But others are stuck. And they have, they have to fight. And it's a very unfortunate situation that I would not want to be in and have chosen not to be. I will not be volunteering for Ukraine. Thank you very much. Uh, stay my ass at home where it's safe. <laughs> but alas, that's the update on the Russo-Ukrainian war. It'll be interesting to see what this uh, phase two entails. And I imagine they'll tell us after they've achieved it, and then we'll have to come to our own conclusions about whether or not they were telling the truth about what their objectives were, or if they were making them up on the spot to justify the gains that they were actually able to make. Because they don't seem to want to use the full force of their military. So, we'll see what the Russians do. They're very peculiar. I'll just say that they're performance in this war is very peculiar so we'll, we'll see what they do we know what their overarching their stated overarching goals are the demilitarization the demilitarization and the denazification of ukraine and i guess we'll just watch the process on how they get there but this is definitely not the way i thought it was going to go no, definitely not i thought they were going to steamroll the country Instead, they've decided to sink in and get accustomed. They've made themselves at home on Ukrainian soil. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Next stop, we have another reason why isolationism is the greatest of ideologies. And I made that the subtitle because I didn't quite know what to title this episode, not this episode, this segment of The Meat. But... Uh, I'll just explain it. So, last week, America, America made a pledge to supply the EU with natural gas. Biden said that the U.S. will work with international partners, um, so translation, Venezuela and the Middle East, the U.S. will work with international partners to supply around 10% of European gas needs for this year. Because, as you know, the Europeans are sh shutting out the Russian gas, and the Germans have actively decided not to use the already built pipeline that they have with Russia. They've chosen not to use it, even though they're not at war with Russia, and the pipeline's built, it's already been... It, it, it's functional, it's there, it's, it's, it's finished, they spent all this time building it. They're not going to use it, and the Germans are paying more and more for their gas. I don't think this is going to end well for the government of Germany. I feel like they're going to get a, 
a very strong reckoning the next time they have an election. Especially because Germany in particular has the option to not have to deal with this. The pipeline is there. It's right there. They really don't have to deal with these higher energy prices. Because they have the direct line, two of them, to Russia. And one of them they're not even using, even though it's finished. Even though I'm pretty sure it's bigger than the, the Nord Stream 1. So Germany in particular is probably going to have a stronger backlash against these policies when, you know, people get fed up with them. So, talked about Germany before, but uh, just that's what I think is going to happen with Germany. They're, they can either course correct or whoever's in charge of their government right now, I believe it's the Greens, they will never be in office again after this if they don't course correct. And take the gas that's right there at a time when they're low on gas reserves and energy prices in Europe are skyrocketing. But they don't want to. They don't want to take the Russian gas. Other countries in Europe are making the decision not to have Russian gas. And these are the governments. The people have opinions about that, but these are the governments. And so the United States has promised to help them supply 10% of their total gas needs for the year. And remember, this is help. This is help, not we're going to supply them with 10%. Because we've killed our own energy industry, so we can't supply them. We're struggling, so to speak, as it is right now in the United States. But... We're going, to, we're going to help Europe. We're going to help Europe get 10% of their total gas needs from the Middle East and Venezuela. But, that being said, may I ask why Europe can't do that themselves? Why can't they do it? I mean, it's, it's not like they're doing anything special. With regards to the war in Ukraine, they're, actually, they're not doing anything at all. They, what, they've sent American stingers. Germany's promised to actually have a military. We'll see where that goes. They promised $100 billion. That puts them up there in the range with China. A little bit. I believe China's at like 130 something billion. So Germany's going to jump up. But um, if Germany has the capability to do that, why can't they get their own gas? As a matter of fact, Germany has a pipeline between them and Russia right now. Why can't they just open the taps? Why can't they just open the taps? Why, why can Europe not get their own gas by themselves? Why do we have to do it? What do we have to do it for them? I mean, this is a block of, what, 27, 28 countries? Take your pick. 27, 28 countries. They have a legislative, judicial, and an executive branch. The European, Cong the European Parliament. The European Court of Justice. 
and the European Commission in uh, each of those respectively, the legislative, judicial, and executive branch. They have their own central bank, their own currency, and all the time in the world. So why can't they get their own damn gas? Why can't they? I mean, I'm supposed to believe that these are the the richest, some of the richest countries in the world, supposedly. And they can't negotiate their own energy deals. They can't, they can't import. They can't organize a trade deal. Even when they're all together in the EU, they can't get a trade deal. They, they just can't do anything. But I'm also supposed to believe that there are strong allies. If they can't, if they can't handle their own energy needs, if they can't negotiate a trade deal to get energy, then what good are they as allies in a military conflict? If you can't handle a trade deal, how are you going to handle a war? Because a war is ultimately a battle of economics as well. You have to supply yourself, supply your troops, and then keep yourself and your troops and your people supplied until the war is over. And if you fail, well, you either lose in the field, in the battlefield, or you lose on the home front. And those two options historically don't go well for the loser. Sometimes you get a revolution. Sometimes you get a coup. If you can't handle a trade deal, how are we supposed... Why should I believe that Europe is going to be a good ally in any military conflict? And again, these are supposed to be some of the richest countries on the planet. They have free health care. They have all this and that. But they can't get their own energy? That's strange to me. Very, very strange to me. And it just leaves me asking the question, why is the government of the United States of America obsessing over how 27 other countries are going to get their natural gas? I mean, this is insanity. And it is an insanity brought to you by the American global hegemony. In which world policing and interventionism are key tenets. Because the idea that we, a country that, is, that isn't anywhere near Europe, that we are somehow responsible for getting natural gas to Europeans is insane. Especially if we're supposed to expect that the Europeans are just going to sit there and not do anything. Are going to sit there and deliberately not use pre-built pipelines. Aren't going to expand any coal production. Aren't going to look for oil in Europe somewhere. Possibly. Maybe they'll use shale oil. That they're not going to, you know, try something to find energy that they have in Europe and rely more on that. We're just 
they're going to use light natural gas. How long is that going to take them? We talked about Germany building two uh, terminals for LNG, uh, not light natural gas, liquefied natural gas. They're going to build two terminals. How long is it going to take for them to build terminals? Are other countries building these same terminals? Because if not, Europe's still going to have an energy crisis. No matter how we get them the gas. Because the only way that you're going to get it to them without building mass numbers of these LNG terminals is through pipeline. So, how are you going to do it? And why is Europe not taking this into their own hands? They're the ones who need the gas. They're the ones who are in this rut. So, why? Why is the United States obsessed over how they're going to get their gas? It's It just doesn't make sense to me. It really just doesn't make sense to me, especially at a time when we are staring down the barrel of $5 a gallon here in the United States. The last thing that ought to be on the mind of the U.S. government is how much other people are going to be paying for their energy, especially if those people are going to not take any precautions to secure their own energy and try to lower the cost. Of their energy we should be prioritizing our own energy concerns thank you very much and look I don't hate Europe I don't hate it's just that Europe is not my responsibility they Europe is the responsibility of the Europeans and they should take care of it they should negotiate their own deals if they have to do that as individual nations then and not as one unified EU bloc then so be it I mean that's how Germany got their pipeline with Russia nation to nation you don't need to do everything with the EU you can do things on a bilateral basis but Europeans have chosen not to do much of anything at all I mean, the Italians will be probably fine. They have, like, half a million pipelines running through them and more being built. But the UK? France has nuclear. So has everyone else just chosen to suffer? I, I don't get it. I don't get it. But enough about my worldview. Because now we're going to talk about one of the biggest things that came uh, from this sanctions war against Russia that has really started to pop off in the last week with a number of events that I get to talk about now. And that is Russia seceding from the petrodollar system. So, Russia, after being sanctioned by the West has done something remarkable. Very, very remarkable. Now, in hindsight, this probably should have been anticipated. It really should have. And I'll just... I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I, too, am guilty of not even thinking about this. Now, what is this that happened, you might ask? 
how has Russia seceded from the Petrodollar? I'll tell you, Russia has now made it so that their gas payments have to be made in Russian rubles, not U.S. dollars. Let me repeat that. Russia has now made it so that countries, if they want to get Russian gas and Russian oil, they have to pay Russia in rubles, which is the Russian currency, and not in dollars. And this is significant because before, everyone had to pay for their oil in U.S. dollars. This system was and remains the backbone of the petrodollar system. And now this is a system that artificially props up the U.S. dollar, uh, even when we print so much of it, because we have every country in the world using the dollar to facilitate their trade of oil, the sale and purchase of oil, and every country in the world needed oil, so that hides the devaluation of the dollar to an extent. And again, artificially props it up. But with Russia, a major oil-producing country, demanding that all payments for their oil and gas have to be made in rubles, you have a shot across the bow towards the petrodollar system. And they are not alone, which makes the story even more significant. Russia's not alone here. In fact, they've inspired other countries to do similar things. Arabia and the UAE are looking like they're likely to follow suit with similar policies. Um, notably, accepting Chinese payments for oil in Chinese yuan. So when the Chinese approach Saudi Arabia, they're going to be able to pay for their oil in yuan rather than in dollars. So China and Russia have effectively, well, Russia has seceded uh, with a clean break. China is already making moves, major moves, to secede from this. And the UAE is likely to do the same with China and with Russia as Arabia is doing. Uh, Mostly China, though, because Russia is a net exporter of oil. China is an importer of oil. So China will be the one buying oil, not Russia. So the UAE is probably going to start accepting Chinese yuan when China wants to buy oil from them. And Brazil and India look like they're making moves to do the same. Where When they buy oil, they're going to try to do it in their own currencies. This is massive this is really massive i mean before like a couple decades ago when countries like libya or iraq made similar moves to this where they were going to start saying hey if you want our oil you have to pay us in our currency when they started making moves like that in the 90s they got invaded but the united states can't do that to Russia. We can't just invade Russia all willy-nilly. There will be no desert storm of Russia. 
which means that the main method of preventing nations from breaking away from the petrodollar, that main method is off the table with Russia. Russia's too strong. So we might just be witnessing the death of the petrodollar right before our very eyes. And to that I say, good riddance to that no good, dirty, rotten scam. I feel very strongly about this with regards to monetary policy. And I elaborated my on my disdain for the petrodollar in my one year anniversary episode, as it is one of the reasons the United States keeps getting itself into well, stupid situations. That stupid situations that serve no purpose to it. Like for instance, obsessing over how Europe's gonna get its gas when Americans are paying five dollars a gallon at the pump and rising. Unfortunately though, uh for as much good as this may bring us in the long term, short term this is also going to mean that the U.S. in the U.S. we're likely going to see inflation accelerate as the artificial crutch for our currency is actively attacked and gets weaker and weaker. You're going to see the dollar drop and drop in value as countries stop using it to facilitate their oil trade. So we're going to see higher inflation as this goes on due to the nature of the petrodollar system. If they're not using our dollar to buy oil, that robs the artificial value of the dollar. Now, the good thing is, we don't need it. The solution, I might add, is and has always been sound money. Sound money. We don't need to be the world's reserve currency. Nor do we need the petrodollar. We don't need other countries paying for oil in USD. We don't need those, and that's a good thing. What we need is a currency that is backed preferably by gold. A currency that, one, has a value in and of itself, not dependent on its use by foreign nations. And two, we need a currency that doesn't lose value every year, which is what inflation really is. It's the devaluation of a currency. So that's what inflation is. Deflation of the dollar, therefore, will do us much good in the long term, especially if we were to get back to the value that the dollar had in 1900. I talked about this as well in the anniversary episode. The difference in the value between the the dollar in 1900 versus the dollar in 2020. So I'll, since I'm talking about it now, I'll bring it up here. Because for comparison, a dollar in 2020 was only worth the same as three pennies were worth in 1900. Three pennies from 1900 are equal to a whole dollar in 2020. 
That's how far we've fallen off thanks to just 2 to 3% inflation every year, which we're told is a good thing. No, no, no. Because we don't get that back. There's, there's never a 2 to 3% deflation the following year. It's just every year inflation of this amount, which means that every year you're losing 2 to 3% of your currency's value. So three pennies in 1900 worth a whole dollar in 2020. And we weren't even the world's reserve currency back then. Britain was with the pound. But even then, our currency, without being the world's reserve, without the petrodollar, our currency back then was 33 times stronger than it is today. 33 times stronger then than it is today. That's insane. It's insane. That's an incredible value of the dollar that we used to have. And that's what we need. That's what we need. That, that value, that intrinsic value from sound money. Not the petrodollar. Ugh. Bleh. Yuck. Yuck. All right. P-U. We don't need it. Good riddance, uh, but hopefully we get sound money sometime soon because the short-term ramifications of the petrodollar dying is going to be, should I say hyperinflation? Or I'll just stick to accelerated inflation. I don't know if we're quite at hyperinflation yet, but gee whiz, looks like we're on track for it. But we don't need the petrodollar. We need sound money. And the sooner we can get to sound money, the better. And I'll leave it at that. Now, I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast, because that's all I have for you today, folks. That's all I got. Ah, the world is changing. There's a quote that's being thrown around a lot from, uh, I believe, Lenin, where it's there are decades, there are years when nothing happens, and then weeks when decades happen. And I guess we're in those weeks now where it feels like a million years go by. But hey, at least it doesn't feel like a million years go by. Not like 2020. No, things are going by at normal people's speeds, but lots is happening. Uh, so that's the good thing. So, ah, The world is changing, folks. But as always, we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, say Arbus. <laughs>